Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Today's episode is part of our special series called Women Behaving Boldly. You know, one of the hottest titles I've ever heard. Shout out to Oliver Wong, okay, for just (laughs) digging in archives and coming up with that. Today we are focusing on albums by women who helped to change the game boldly. And today's episode is dedicated to the greatest of all time, the late and great Queen of Soul, Miss Aretha Franklin. In the weeks and months since Aretha's passing in mid-August, much has been said about her singular import and influence, and we are not going to try to unpack all of that right this moment. Instead, by way of an introduction, I'd just like to share one of my favorite passages about Aretha, written by Peter Goralnik in his Essential History of R&B, Sweet Soul Music, about a day in 1967 when her breakout album, I Never Loved a Man, came out in Boston. Quote, I'd gone over to Skippy White's Mass Records, home of the blues, and the little speaker over the door that was beamed to the sidewalk was filled with Aretha. People were dancing on the frosty street with themselves or with one another and lining up at the counter to get a purchase on that magic sound as the record kept playing over and over. It was as if the millennium had arrived. To help us talk about Aretha Franklin, her music, and her legacy, we invited artist slash DJ slash scholar slash writer Lene Denise. When she's not teaching classes at Cal State LA, shout out to CSUs, she's traveling the world, performing, giving talks, and in general, being a living testament to her concept of DJ scholarship, where mixing and blending aren't just technical skills, but represent an ethos on how to conduct and share research. She also wrote a wonderful piece about today's artist in focus, where she said of Aretha, quote, if by diva you mean she had high standards, assertiveness, a willingness to be confrontational when the stakes were high, and a clarity of vision accompanied by the skills we see it through, then yes, Ms. Franklin was a diva. Mm. Lene, welcome to Heat Rocks. Oh my God, thank you. I'd like us to start off today by just talking about if you each have a recollection of your first encounter with Aretha and her music. And if I can just start here and be honest about it, she's one of the very few artists that I have no memory of discovering because there was no moment where I don't remember where she didn't exist. And certainly this helps that I was a 70s baby and so born and as a young child, raised during her most prolific period. But unlike other artists where I have a very distinct, yes, this is when I first heard blah, 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 Aretha was always just there. I was born into Aretha's world. And so, yeah, I don't actually have a memory of how I discovered her. How about for each of you? Yeah, you're right. I feel like we're born into the kind of world of Aretha, definitely me through my grandmother, Mm. my parents, my mother. And so I feel like my first recollection of my relationship with her comes through maybe how I understood her through the sample. Oh. Yeah, and so it was actually Rocksteady. It was EPMD, I'm housing. <laughs> I, it has to be one of the most important samples. And yeah, so I would say through, you know, on my own accord, I came in through Aretha, 
um, as an independent music lover through that sample. Yeah. I think the same. Aretha Franklin and my mother are the same age. And so I mm. feel like um, I grew up with Aretha in the household. And before I was old enough to know the difference between genres, Aretha was just Aretha. So I heard a lot of Aretha in the house. I heard bluesy Aretha. I heard gospel Aretha. I heard soulful Aretha. And we all claimed her as just Aretha. I'm genreless. But um, the clearest memory I have of her is my cousin's trying to do this dance called The Bus Stop. And it involved, like, moving your hips from side to side. So Rocksteady was the song that they were trying to do mm. it to. Um, I'm glad to say that I won that contest. <laughs> uh, shout out to Tanisha yes. and, uh, and Kelly. Uh, but that's the first song that I think I, I kept playing over and over again because we tried to dance to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we generally start out with, why did you choose the album you chose? And we can get to that a little bit later. But just off the cuff... It can be her music or Aretha as a person. What's the first thing that comes to mind? I want to say I I wrote this line that I feel like absolutely embodies my every thought about her, which is that Aretha's voice, Aretha's throat, in fact, is a motherland Mm. for black America in particular. I think of her voice as a landing place um, and a place where through her range we found some dignity Um, Through her grace, we found a different kind of understanding of how to move through black America. I'll go with low-hanging fruit from my point of view, which is to talk about her voice. And I was thinking about this, especially in preparation, not just for the show, but just in thinking about her music in the weeks since she passed, is for me, I don't really necessarily have a relationship to Aretha's albums per se. And of course, we're going to talk about some of her albums, and they're great albums. But I always think of really just songs, and even in some cases, simply notes that she hit. It'll make you twist over the Aretha is in that category, and I don't know if there's anyone else besides her, where just the way in which she hits a note and what it does on some kind of psychoacoustic level to my body and mind is unlike anything that I can compare it to. When I think about all the other great singers in American or just pop music history, there's no one who really even comes close to that. I mean, I, you know, I've, I think I've said on this show, Ella Fitzgerald has one of the best pure voices out there, Whitney Houston in the same way. And they're in the same ballpark, but you know, listening to Aretha, that's Jordan slamming from the free throw line every mm-hmm. single time. Just, yeah. I think about, when I think of Aretha, the first thing that comes to mind is blackness. Mm. Um, we say about soul food that people don't move after you eat it because you need time to let it stick to you. 
And that's what Aretha feels like to me, um, unabashedly black. Mm. I can't separate uh, Aretha's music from the songs she interpreted. Mm -hmm. And in prep for the chat, I was like, I don't want to keep saying interpreted. So let me look to (laughs) synonyms. And one of the best ones I found was throw light on, meaning to illuminate. And when I think of Aretha Franklin, I think Aretha Franklin threw light on. So many of the songs that were recorded by other people. We can get into Holy Moses um, and some of the other ones. But I think of Holy Moses because no no shade to Elton John. But what Aretha did with Holy Moses uh, was holy, for lack of a better better word. Or what she did with respect. Respect. Mm-hmm. Or what mm-hmm. she did with fill in the blank. Eleanor Rigby. Right. A long and winding road. Still it leads me back. This is a lukewarm take because I don't I think it's almost self evident. Is Aretha not the greatest cover song maker in history? Ever. Yeah. <laughs> At yes. last. Yes. I mean, when I heard at last on the unreleased, I was like, I didn't say at a who, but I was like, at a damn, because <laughs> it was like a completely different at last. Right. Mm-hmm. Was wrapped in clover. already getting worn out and we only three questions in (laughs) this happens a lot well i would think that aretha when we talk about and this is something that gets used so much when we talk about cover songs the idea of an artist making a song their own there's a lot of ways in which that happens you play with the arrangement you switch up the instrumentation you do something different vocally you pick up the tempo you slow down the okay all all those things We, we know what that looks like and i think with aretha she is the platonic ideal of making something your own, which is to say that once you hear her version of it, it's hard to hear any other version of it. And I know we keep kind of getting ahead of ourselves because we, we're we talking about songs that are actually on the albums we're supposed to be talking about. But let me just push this up to the forefront now. I would never, ever say this about anybody else besides Aretha. But I don't know how you outdo Nina Simone on a Nina Simone song. Whoa. But Aretha yeah. covering... Naming her album after Young, Gifted, and Black. And I went back and listened to, the, to Nina's original just to make sure that I was giving its proper due and not being, you know, recency biased because of the past. Oh, what a lovely, precious dream. To be young, gifted, and black. I think the world of Nina, she's one of the yes. incomparable artists. But my God, what Aretha did with her version of it. I mean, that's absolutely why I chose the album. I mean, not just that song alone, but yes, before she gets to the first verse, this this history in the black church of mm-hmm. introducing the song with a possible five-minute <laughs> <laughs> organ-based so interlude, you know, I mean... 
And they're both out of the black church. Those parallels are real. So as a matter of fact, maybe I should wait before we get into it, because that's actually a major point that I wanted to discuss. Actually, let's just get into it now. And for the listeners out there, you all are used to us talk, picking one album and talking about it. But because this is Aretha and because her enormity cannot be captured by any one single recording, each of us picked our own favorite, or at least the album that we wanted to talk about. And Lene, you wanted to talk about her 1972 album, Young, Gifted, and Black. So I'm going to turn things back over to you here. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I mean, my first pick, I feel like it was an obvious one, and so I kind of challenged myself to think about my top three. But the first is Amazing Grace, mm. and I do want to enter a conversation about Young, Gifted, and Black through Amazing Grace because mm. it's the album that she released one year later. Right. And it's that relationship between Watts and Detroit, mm. and that migration mm. of Motown, you know, Michael's move to L.A., Marvin's move to L.A., um, Gordy's moved to L.A., Diana's moved to L.A., and then Aretha Landing in James Cleveland's church. Actually, what's the name of the church? It's New Temple Missionary Baptist yeah. Church. So New Temple Baptist Church, where she recorded Amazing Grace in Watts, California. I mean, just a relationship where I feel like Black Watts and Black Detroit, mm. you know, are cousins musically and spiritually in that, you know, um, Aretha is that actual thread and that line that brings the two Black spaces together. Um, and so, yeah, 1972 is the year that the album is released. Um, three, maybe four years after Nina Simone releases the 1969 album. Right. And yes, I mean, it's just recently um, I begin to think about the intersections between the two artists because there is a lot in common there, their, their relationships with their fathers. But yes, the versions of Young, Gifted, and Black and Aretha's opening mm. is something that especially since she's passed, I've had to just sit with in a different way. Young, Gifted, and Black, from the first song to the last, incredible, incredible piece of work that I think speaks to Aretha's range because within it she has her own songs, right, that she wrote Rocksteady mm-hmm. and that she also wrote the second song that she wrote. Um, Daydreaming. Actually, Daydreaming. Mm-hmm. She wrote Rocksteady and Daydreaming. Crazy. And those are the two songs that yeah. are sampled. And so then I had to go back and think about Aretha's Life as someone who's been sampled, and then I had to apologize to her because I realized that the focus of sampling has been centered on James Brown, when actually Aretha holds a close record behind him. I didn't realize this. The number of rappers and producers and DJs who dug into the crates to bring Aretha to, you know, hip hop, I think is a really important thing. And Mm. so Rocksteady in particular, and also DJ Premier and what he did, I believe, with Daydreaming on the Daily Operation album. No, with the title song. Yep, the title interlude, yes. You know, I think that the album just, like, speaks to multiple generations. And just also thinking about the number of times that Young, Gifted, and Black has been covered, I think one thing that's interesting is, yes, those obvious connections between Nina and and Aretha, but Elton John recorded it. What? Elton John (laughs) (laughs) recorded Young, Gifted, and Black. Mm -hmm. And it's on an unreleased album that he has. Right? And also the heptones. Oh, 
and also Bob and Marcia Griffin. Right, that hit the UK charts, right? So I'll allow those. <laughs> right, but Elton <laughs> But I think it's amazing because Elton John was someone she respected so much and in fact she performed with him in 2017 for AIDS benefit. It's one of her last performances. As, as we were alluding to earlier, I think Nina's original is remarkable. Sure. But on a musical level, you know, you give it three years, you have Aretha backed, as Linnea was pointing out, by just a murderer's row of the best producers, the best musicians Ever. in the game. And the majesty of what they do with that title track is, is astounding. Yep. Mm-hmm. But you, were, you wanted to talk about some of your other favorite songs. So we, 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 we've gotten the title track down. What else you got? On well, there? because, you know, Oda's Redding. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about her relationship um, to his covers. Yes, respect. But also, I've been loving you too long. Yeah. I, I cannot where you know, she starts the song with... That's where we're going to start. You hurt my feelings asking me that. We're not even going to know yet what he asked. <laughs> we're just going to, that's, we're going to start at the place where we're picking up where we left off and Aretha is taking us on this journey. And then Irma and Carolyn behind her, obviously, along with Sissy Houston and, mm-hmm. you know, and also, you know, Billy Preston. Yeah. Yes. It's on this album. Al Jackson Jr. Al mm. Jackson, Eric Gale. Okay, it's just, I mean, it's it's all stars, you know, and I traveled to Detroit um, to pay respect both to the city and to Aretha. And I stood in line with black folks in Detroit and heard the conversations about the good work that Swanson's funeral home did with her body. And I walked into the Charles Wright Museum and Aretha was singing at her memorial. They had music from Amazing Grace. (laughs) And Aretha sang at her memorial, at King's memorial, at Albertina Walker's memorial. That's an amazing... I mean, please, you all, when I pass, may I please spin my own funeral? Like, who can... (laughs) Right. I think when I thought about black folks gathered around waiting in line um, to see Aretha Franklin, Mm -hmm. the respect due. Mm -hmm. It's not cold in Detroit right now. it's not. The time that you take... Mm -hmm. um, and these are regular black folks. Mm-hmm. There was a regularity to Aretha Franklin. There was a there was like a, a down to earthness. So the juxtaposition of her being called a queen, but her feeling like your homegirl and her feeling like your aunt and your mom. Mm-hmm. It's a great story that a friend of mine told about Aretha Franklin signing a record deal, and it was a big, huge deal, a big, huge amount that we mm-hmm. won't mention here. And so the executives were like, "Well, you know what? This is big. Like this is really big. Let's go out to dinner." And Aretha said, well, no, no, I'm going to cook for you guys. And they were like, well, no, it's on the label. So we're going to let's just go out and have fine dining. And she was like, well, no, I'm actually going to cook for you. So finally they acquiesced. And the rumor was like they were just done afterwards, like unable to move (laughs) several courses. The feeling was like this was her. You could not change that this was someone whose comfort 
was mostly in the home. I saw a great interview with her where she said, I like to bowl and play whisk. Come on. And that was Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. And despite the dignitaries and all those other people at the funeral, the people that lined the streets Mm -hmm. and stayed in line, yourself and others, Mm -hmm. regular folks that loved Aretha Mm -hmm. and whose Aretha's presence appealed to the regularness in all all of us. Mm. And to make herself available to those people, you know, following her death, and they understood that. I actually landed at a, I think Monday Monday evening and drove past the museum, just curious. Is this going to be like a folks, you know, camping out and waiting? And I came across a man who was the first person in line who was in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. you know. And I said to him, are you going to stay here all night for Aretha? And he said to me, yeah, baby, this is Motown. Mm. <laughs> this is Motown. And also I mm. rolled up and I saw four black women cops sort of guarding the space that her body was going to be in state, in fact. I think it may be the only time and probably the last time where I felt a sense of joy upon coming up on some cops. Right. <laughs> you know, I was like, there are four black women in uniform. So the way that I'm processing this is that this is a state funeral yeah, for black America in particular. And Jesse Jackson's eulogy is something that I think is key, which takes us back to the music because his roll call of black gospel royalty. But then he goes into, you know, and it makes these important connections between Aretha and jazz and Duke Ellington and the folks who, Hmm. you know, Art Tatum, the folks that were a part of her childhood experience. I'm like, we grew up listening to Aretha on Saturday mornings while cleaning up. What does it mean that Aretha was listening to the greats? The the greats. And then aligning herself with, um, the greats, as, as Oliver mentioned, the greats on her album and even on Amazing Grace. At the time she hooked up with James Cleveland, he's then known as the king and the godfather of gospel music. Come on. So it's just like royalty in the church, royalty everywhere. Not to say that those elements by themselves were responsible for her sound, but if you got this many people in the <laughs> studio with you, how do you come out with a bad album? <laughs> to come back to Young, Gifted, and Black, one of my favorite songs off of here, and just one of my all-time favorite Aretha songs, period, mm-hmm. Daydreaming. Number one, one of the most incredible openings for a song that I can imagine. Apparently, it scared off the label because they thought it wouldn't play on radio because it was just too out there for conventional hip radio songs at the time. Mm-hmm. But the song to me is inseparable from that op- that opening, which I think that's Donnie on the keys, mm. that floating effect. Mm-hmm. Everything about it is just sublime. I also didn't realize until I was researching this uh, this past week that that song was supposedly written by Aretha. I mean, mm-hmm. that, it was written by Aretha. That's mm-hmm. not the supposedly part. Mm-hmm. One of the only... I guess three original compositions in the LP, but it was mm-hmm. written in dedication to her then boyfriend, Dennis Edwards oh, the of Temptations. The Temptations. Mm-hmm. And can okay. you can you imagine <laughs> you're dating Aretha and she writes a song like that for you? And if it was anybody else besides Dennis Edwards, who of course had a very storied career in his sure. own right, but that should be the first line in your obit is that Aretha wrote a love song about you. I mean, that's the first thing someone should say. Mm-hmm. And a hit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not just mm-hmm. a song, right. a hit. Mm-hmm. 
But I, and I mean, listening to that, listening to that opening reminds me of something important, which is the fact that Arita is rooted in a certain kind of tradition around speculative fiction, which is, I feel like, you know, um, a testament of the black church mm-hmm. where gospel is future oriented. But then also, you know, Aretha is this interesting. When we talk about her moving between genres, she also moved between ideas. And so I think on your album, which I know we'll get into, she talks about astrology, mm-hmm. which I feel like you usually are not doing in the black church. Mm-mm, it's frowned upon. Exactly. It's called certain things like divination. Say, say in church you're reading your horoscope. People no, will be like, oh, no. It's not, right? No, no. It's, a, it's you you're know, going to hell in a handbasket. It's demonized. Literally, yes. you're going to hell in a handbasket, no less. So I just think that opening speaks to her willingness to be experimental. Both of you have talked about the background singers, her sisters and mm-hmm. some of the others. Daydreaming to me is one of the songs where the background vocalists come in so strong. It's a relationship thing, not just the song, but how they're connected. Absolutely. I've been, you know, geeking out because the other thing when I was thinking about Rocksteady, I was looking up Soul Sister and what Soul Sister really means. Mm-hmm. And there's just certain definitions where it's like a person that gets you, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. whose who sentences are mm-hmm. completed by them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what daydreaming is. Mm-hmm. I love Aretha on here. I love the background vocals on Daydreaming. I love the Essential. background. And don't they start Essential. the song? They do. They do. That song is inseparable Carolyn. from all of those elements. Mm-hmm. Did we play it already? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I was like, can we hear it again? Well, I don't care. He's the kind of guy that you give you everything and trust your heart, share all of your love till death. We'll be back with more of our conversation with DJ Lenade Nice about Aretha Franklin after this brief word from some of our sister Max Fun podcast. Keep it locked. And when his lonesome and feeling love stopped, I'll be there to feed it. I'm loving him a little bit for each day. Welcome, everyone, to the live wrestling spectacular in Los Angeles. So far, the world's most boring wrestling podcast has been destroying the competition. Isn't there anyone who can save us from this travesty? Wait, could it be? It's Titan Fights, the perfect wrestling podcast. Titan Fights is here to save us from the monotony of boring wrestling podcasts with hilarious conversations. Woke trips through the history of wrestling. And joke about the finer points of people wearing spandex. What a match! And the Tights and Fights podcast will be back every week. Thursdays on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Please, these hosts have families. Tights and Fights podcast. Tights and Everybody, I'm your oldest brother, Justin McElroy. I'm your middlest brother, Travis McElroy. And I'm your sweet baby brother, Griffin McElroy. Me and 3,000 of your closest friends just found your next podcast obsession. Cereal! Okay, but like, the second best podcast. Oh, f- just listen to my brother, my brother, and me on MaximumFun.org. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. We are back with DJ Lene Denise talking the greatness of Aretha Franklin here on Heat Rocks. 
I just want to make note of the fact that there was just so much joy in this room talking about her music. And of course, every time we record one of these episodes, yes, we love talking about the albums and the artists and the songs. But there's something about for I'll just speak for myself, but I, I, I sense it from from everyone here. We could talk about we could have plugged practically any album out of her catalog and just pick random songs. And there would be something about those that would just fill us with this intense desire to want to gush over because that's just what she brought to the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I am secure in this room because I know that I don't have to convince anybody in here of her greatness. <laughs> right. And nobody has to convince me. We're all around the same generation, so yeah. we know the importance. I'm not talking about her in past tense because she is eternal mm. to me. Mm. And also, too, because... And this is no shade against millennials. Love you, um, Christian. <laughs> um, no shade against them. But yeah. we are of her moment, of her time. So I don't have to sell anybody. Right. And so the joy is coming from the fact that I'm secure, that I know that I'm in um, shared company here, mm. a shared love for her. And that, that makes me happy. It's going to be a hard shift here. But <laughs> <laughs> but you'll do it. You well, will no, do we it. Just, we got a lot to, to get through. I feel like we could just end the episode right there. But. For my album pick, I wanted to focus on a lesser-known compilation of Aretha that I first came across in the early 1990s, Mm. which is anthologizing her Columbia years, which is before she joined up with Atlantic and really became Aretha as we know it. This comp was called Jazz to Soul. You change the sunshine rain And just for I am, of course, a massive fan of Aretha's Atlantic years, as we've been gushing over. And that's where almost all of her greatest hits were recorded, was with Atlantic. But I've spent most of my career as a music writer really trying to put the spotlight on the half decade that Aretha spent before that at Columbia Records. Not because it's better than Atlantic years, but because it tends to get overlooked. And the, the general conventional wisdom around it is that Columbia signed her try to turn her into a torch singer, sort of the next Dinah Washington mm. or the next Deanne Warwick, and completely miss the boat on what makes Aretha, you know, the queen of soul. And they just, they miss the boat on that. And yeah, sure, it, it, I'm not going to challenge the conventional wisdom in that sense. But it doesn't mean that those five, six years where she recorded nine full-length albums, mm-hmm. it's not like she was mm-hmm. on there for a blip mm-hmm. and then moved on. She spent I mean, she spent half a decade recording prolifically for Columbia, which means that there were incredible moments here that I think, again, people tend to forget because it's not on the radio. It's not on the conventional greatest hits albums that we get. And when I first came across Jazz to Soul, I probably bought it at Amoeba Records back up in Berkeley as, a, as an undergraduate. This was my complete introduction to the fact that she even had a pre-career or pre-Atlantic career. And it was just mind-blowing to me because – whether the production or the music matches the Aretha that we now think of, in terms of what she was able to do as a singer, you could hear that manifest from the earliest age possible. And just listen, for example, to how she hits this opening note on her cover of the, I think it's the Dinah Washington hit, Drinking Again. So now I looked this up because that was track A4 
on Aretha's 1964 tribute album to Dinah Washington called Unforgettable. And just imagining that you have gotten home and you, you've taken the record out of the sleeve and you put it on your phonograph and it's just playing in the background and it comes to track A4 and that voice comes over your hi-fi system. Mercy, I mean, what would you even do with that? Just run outside. Yeah, you just and jump. <laughs> <laughs> just run outside. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, have the two of you sat a lot with her Columbia records? It's good you mentioned this because I'm late to the party on this compilation too. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to place this bitter earth in Selma. That's an amazing song too. And just the moment that I wanted to place it in. We went back and forth over should there be music, mm. should there not be music. And ultimately, and, and Skylark too, ultimately we decided to go with no music there. It's the scene where after Coretta and Martin Luther King have, you know, everything's come out on the table and she walks up the stairs to join him in that hall. It's, it's sort of like they've had that role, everything's come out about the infidelities. Right, right. And she takes this long walk up the stairs and I wanted to play this bitter earth there. What fruited bed What good is love? To get to the placement of that song, the first time I heard this song, I played it in the car. Um, I have a CD stuck in my CD player, so I had to listen to it on my phone. And I had to pull over. It's just, it, it gets into your soul like something I have never heard before. And and, and it's just a, it's so sweeping and so orchestral in yeah. how she rides the song. It's a tough decision for a music supervisor to make because when you love a song, you just love a song. And I thought it was perfect. And ultimately, it wasn't that another song won. It was a silence one. Mm. And we wanted to hear Coretta's steps. The point we were trying to make is there's a long walk to forgiveness. Mm. And we didn't want to interrupt it with Aretha Franklin, even though it's beautiful. But we didn't want the moment to outshine Aretha or Aretha to outshine the moment. And it just wasn't a fit. That said... Bitter Earth has become one of my favorite Aretha songs because it'll always be wedded to Selma and for my my uh, the need for me to grow as a music supervisor and mm. know mm. not to over-accessorize a moment. I'm something I'm working on in my private life. I'm with fashion. and You guys pray for me. I've still, uh, <laughs> still got a ways to go. But I thought but that, that was my introduction um, to this album. This bitter, bitter, I, you know, I don't, or I hadn't had a relationship with her Columbia years. It's interesting because I'm thinking about, you know, Aretha, because if I'm not mistaken, she moved to New York during this time. And so early 60s Detroit is interesting to think about, you know, what's coming out of Detroit and the Motown sound and also the civil rights movement that her father um, was steeped in during these years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear the kind of the the space, the silence, the jazz vocals, the standards in this 60s work when Detroit was turned up yeah. so loudly, whether it was through The Sound of Young America, um, whether it was through, you know, the work that the Nation of Islam was doing in Detroit, as well as Dr. King and the many others that, you know, were on the ground organizing with him. I will say I'm developing a very new relationship with her tribute to Dinah Washington. 
Is that from the Columbia years? It is, yeah. indeed. I mean, yeah. and so now I'm thinking about who Aretha was listening to. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about the relationship that Dinah Washington and Aretha Franklin had to alcoholism. Mm. And not to bring in, and, I, and by no means, and I understand that, you know, Aretha was super private, you know, and, and, and rightfully so, because we've witnessed this kind of celebrity machine chew us up and spit us out, right? right? But I think that there's something about the song that you selected and it being about, you know, drinking again, mm-hmm. right? Which is also at the root of blues, which is what mm-hmm. she was really steeped in during these years as well. It's like yeah. the conversation around alcohol mm-hmm. um, is something that's interesting to me. But yeah, the, the Dinah Washington tribute album is gorgeous. Yeah. I think you make a fantastic point here, which is that partly also why the Columbia era tends to get overlooked is that it is anomalous with the social and political context in which we tend to think of Aretha exactly. and her breakout. And I can't make a defense on that. I mean, this was Columbia's like, all right, we got another hit torch singer here who can pop out a bunch of jazz and blues songs for us. And even though, again, I ride for that material because on a musical level, I think a lot of it's wondrous. Once you think of what happens to Aretha post-67, 67 it's like a completely different artist in other ways. Absolutely. Um, and how that coincides with the Detroit riots in 67. Respect yeah. comes out with the riots. And there's a, certain, there's a certain respectability that goes along with Torch song singers mm-hmm. in this period. Mm-hmm. They're looking for an image and a way right. to, you know, to, to perform the songs and interpret the songs. And everyone in that class, um, Dinah Washington, Shirley Horn, mm-hmm. Carmen McRae, it's a there's a buttoned up sense of them, right. and when Aretha moved over to Atlantic, Afro, Dashiki, <laughs> there was no more of that torch song that I think the Columbia Columbia Records um, releases represent. Mm-hmm. It was like a breakout, and I think to right. me, Columbia years were like we're trying to keep you in this in this area. Right. N- not to say that she didn't ride those songs mm-hmm. though, but I think there's there was an image thing there too. Mm. She wasn't rocking that fro until like sixty nine seventy though. Exactly. Like when she first started right. Atlantic, it's still I think she had a little bit relaxed. A little bit relaxed. But, yeah. but by the time we get to uh, by the time we get to those later years, she is there. One thing that one of your earlier comments made me think of is thinking about what it would have been like had Aretha's career, musically speaking, right? But if it had been followed sort of the path that Ray Charles hmm. had done, which is to say that Ray just dabbled in whatever genre that he himself embraced. And so could you I mean, we know what Aretha's gospel album sounds like because it's just the best-selling gospel album of all time, Amazing Grace, which we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. But what if Aretha had done a country album? Wouldn't she have killed it? Couldn't she have killed a, a, a country western album? It would have been weird, but then again, Ray doing it initially seemed weird, but we now listen to that stuff now. It's That's like, a hit, though. You know? That album is mm-hmm. a heat rock. Mm-hmm. I think she could have bodied anything. Yeah. Right? I think she, she because she bodied blues and gospel. Her disco LP, so-so, though. I mean, let's just keep it real. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know if she killed House, though, yeah, prior. she did. Yeah. And, and not to jump to it. Jump to it is where I was 80s. going. I think we, the 80s, I feel Pink like, Cadillac. are extremely, you know, underexplored. Yeah. Aretha 1980. Yeah. I mean, you she's know? making hits, but no one likes to talk about the 80s. Aretha people much. people comfortably scoot that out of her yes. discography. Yeah. Yes. Those were hits. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And and her work with Luther Vandross would jump to it. My God. Luther and Aretha? 
I mean, just, it's not right <laughs> on a spiritual level. Just yes. not right. Yes. And she scats on Jump to It. Yes. Like, you know, I mean, in the 80s. Yeah. So now, did I love Jumping Jack Flash? I did not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, the collaborations, her and George Benson, her and Curtis Mayfield, you know. Her I and mean, George Michael. I knew you were George waiting for me. George Michael. Yes. So funny. Yeah. But again, I think this goes back to these are the points of her career that musically are rich but don't fit into the conventional narrative we have sure. around Aretha, which yeah, doesn't really allow for the 80s work to fit comfortably yeah. into this, mm-hmm. uh, which is a shame because you're missing out on both her 80s work and you're missing out on her early 60s work yeah. as a consequence of it. I'm going to wrap up my thing real quick here. I just want to point out to the listeners out there, Jazz of Soul is simply one of now many Columbia-era compilations. When it first came out in 1992, there wasn't a ton out there, but in the years since, I mean, it's been a quarter century, so there's been much more. Um, if people can't find Jazz to Soul because that might be out of print, I might recommend you towards The Queen in Waiting, which is another very well mm-hmm. curated comp of the same era. Or if you really want to just ball out, pick up Take a Look, which is her 11 CD, five DVD box set that is the complete Columbia catalog. And one side note, and Lene, you keep talking about the samples, and I have to mention this because – one of her best-known samples for a certain generation of hip-hop listeners, at least, came off of her Columbia years, though it's a song that actually didn't get comped onto most of these Columbia anthologies, really until, until Take a Look, which is a song that was a B-side cut, wasn't even on one of the major LPs, called One Step Ahead. Ooh. The head of misery One step is all I have Same old fool for you I used to be. It's the same pretty bird who I have priorly observed trying to play me for the herd. Shocked to tell she couldn't get it together. I just played along and pretended I never met. And shout out to Ayatollah for flipping that for Miss for most steps. Yes, Miss Fat Booty. Absolutely. Yeah. So just had to couldn't leave without that. Mm-hmm. But Morgan, your album pick. Oh man, an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> Thirty-five tracks. The rare and unreleased uh, album by Aretha Franklin. It's almost, there are almost too many songs for me to talk about. But since we're here (laughs) and I'm gaudy, okay, I would pick a double album with 35 tracks. The one thing that struck me about this album and why I picked this album is because in the days leading up to Aretha Franklin and in the days after, people talked a lot about her voice and people talked a lot about her heart. People did not talk a lot about her conversation. Mm -hmm. And one thing about this album is you get to hear Aretha talk. Yes, you do. Which is so important because it establishes her as not just an artist. She is completely in control. Mm -hmm. She will always be remembered for her voice. But people don't talk enough about her hands and the control that she had in in the studio. It's so hard. But one of my favorite songs on here is her duet with Ray Charles, Ain't But The One. Way out in space Who put that smile on Little baby's face Who has the power Where did it all come from It's a song written by Duke Ellington It's about how God is, who God is, what he does um, I love the black English of it. You know, she could have said there's only that's singular. How many people are in your party? Ain't but the one. I love the blackness of that. Jackson. Jackson. 
I love that when the track is over, but she's still singing. Um, when you see it live, Aretha lifts up. She's got on like a long dress, and she lifts it up, and she does what we call in the churches. She cuts her step, mm. um, you know, Holy Ghost dancing and praise dancing. Um, church was everywhere in Aretha. Church was everywhere in her experience, and I love this because it's her and Ray Charles who himself also grew up in the church. Um, I, I don't pay as much attention to her duets. I'm in general, I always think of Aretha singularly, but this to me is a standout mm. cut mm. on the album. Bible funk. <laughs> that's just what it is. You know? That's just what it is. Is this a comp that you have had time to sit with? Yes. I mean, again, 35 songs, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, so but I've been Maybe listening not one to sitting. It. Yeah. I've been running to it. And, and it's funny, that track is, yeah, Bible Funkology. But also, I was really, really moved by her voice, Morgan. And so it was it was great to hear her voice and to hear her control. And thank you for talking about her hands, you know, and we and we know we know the story. She played by ear. She couldn't read music. And, you know, but but what does that say about what she did on that piano with her hands? Mm. Um, and yeah, within this album, I was able to hear the dynamic between Jerry Wexler and Aretha. Morgan, I think you wanted to talk about the song that we opened our show with, which is the demo version of what would become her first big hit. Yep. I never loved a man. Hey, it started to get good in there. Yes, it did. Because had that rocking thing. You're no good, heartbreaker. Oof. I love the back and forth between um, her and the engineer. He's like, got good in there and she said yes it did <laughs> that rocking thing okay I have to say there are demos on here and there, there are outtakes which even without engineering if these are your demos and outtakes this is enough It's elegant, and not to say that Etta James isn't. Etta James is bluesy. It sounds like it comes from the gut and from the soul. This is elegance, and um, it's one of the things that I that I thought, I wonder what would have happened had that been a big hit for Aretha as opposed to Etta. It was not. It was Etta's, it was Etta's big hit. But had the world heard this first, I wonder what would have happened um, to Etta James because that was her. That was her song. We know Etta would have been shady mm-hmm. about the, shaded about the cover because she didn't appreciate Beyonce. Yeah, she didn't. And so, um, so no. That could have been more of a generational thing, but who knows? Who could have been. Could have been. I love this album as well, and I don't know if we mentioned it earlier, but this came out around ten years ago. I think it came out in two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Yeah. What blew my mind about it is that how did this stuff stay in the vaults this whole time? That it took until just 11 years ago that someone finally decided to kind of let it loose. And I think with any artist with a career as long as someone like Aretha Franklin, yes, of course, there's going to be a lot of vault stuff there. I mean, we're all still waiting to hear what Prince has, you know, has stashed away at Paisley Park and whatnot. But it just was incredible how some of these songs, were, which were clearly in a near-to-finish state, someone decided, nah, we're not going to put that on sure. there. And I think one of the songs for me that, like, how could you not put this out? was recorded in the summer of 67 
on, I think this would have been Aretha's second Atlantic album, which was Aretha Arrives. And it's a song called Oof. So Soon, mm-hmm. which just grooves. It's got just amazing brass. You'll hear it here. That sounds close to finish to me. Yeah. 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 And so I wonder yeah. what the holdup was. Was it a label thing? Was Aretha like these aren't ready? I'd be curious to know. Right. And we were talking about, too, not just the songs that were recorded but not released, but also as we have been ta- as we have been talking, the, a lot of the, the alternative takes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had mentioned this earlier, which we got to bring back, which is the alternative take of Rocksteady because we've spent sm- so mm-hmm. much of our time today yeah, talking about absolutely. it. And this version of it, the end of the song is, I mean, if people thought that the opening of Daydreaming was too psychedelic, the ending of this version of Rocksteady sounds like the entire studio was just sipping that syrup. Yeah. They're on that chronic on this take right right here. <laughs> but also rock, you know? And I feel like that's a genre that she doesn't get, like, aligned yeah. with. But I'm like, actually, yeah. that was a funkadelic, totally. or psychedelic, rather. Not right. funkadelic, but hey. Yeah. Fits Go with well, it. Go yeah. with right? it. Right? But a psychedelic right. rock ending. If you have to, um, there's there's a ton of stuff on here, the, the cuts on here that I've mentioned, Oliver's mentioned, and Lene's mentioned. But the thing that haunts me about this album and the song that I keep going back to is a song called Are You Leaving Me. Um, came up at the time where the, it was announced that she was close to the end, and one that I can't stop listening to since. Are you leaving me? Is that her on the keys? Yeah. It's just, uh, it was hard to listen to on the way, you know, when it was getting close, and it's hard to listen to now. And whatever she's talking about, whoever she's talking about at whatever time, mm. is just dripping with sentiment. It's you, you hear the pain, you hear just so much in her voice, and uh, that's the one that I keep coming back to. This is a fantastic album, and with 35 tracks, you got your choices. Mm-hmm. But that's the one that stays with me. I want to say, like, you know, Aretha has this interesting relationship with Good Dick that comes through these songs. This we is, won't edit this out. Okay, this this is, is, this kids is what, don't listen to this. This is what comes up for me, is Aretha's relationship to Good Dick and how it shows up in her music. You know, like it, 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 whoever's leaving her, Dr. Feelgood or Rocksteady or even Respect, so mm-hmm. to, you know, like yeah. give me my properties when I get home. You know, like, her sexuality and her as a sexy person, mm-hmm. which I feel like is not really... It's something not. that we think about. Because, again, it doesn't fit into the narrative. Right. It doesn't. And, and, and or her body type. Right. And sex, I was just about to say, sexiness is a voluptuous woman. The closest to this I see is Jill Scott. Yeah. Who's buxom. And and she was the one that coined the term dickmatized. Like, I wasn't even really knowing <laughs> about that, that family. until. Right. She's in that family of good dick music. Right. And you can hear it's like, um, I mean, and it's a, right, in that lineage of blues women who are just like, right. listen, you know, like I sold everything for it. Right. Because he brought it. Right. 
Exactly. There's a there's a that that's a think piece ready, waiting to happen. The digmatization. Yes. Of Aretha. urban music. Yes. Of Aretha. <laughs> the digmatization of Aretha yeah. and urban music. <laughs> exactly. And and sadly, what it's been attached to, right? And these 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 horrible relationships that yeah. have created amazing music, yeah. but that took a toll. Right. You know. And I'm really not into the. I, almost the like sanitation of of Aretha because I want to be honest about the fact that Riri had some meanness that I again also went into the music, you know, like but there's a there's a black church meanness mm-hmm. that she was exposed to that she participated in that we saw and sometimes shade and petty gets dismissed as this, this kind of like humorous effect, but you know Aretha. Clap back. The, cl- the clap back. <laughs> Queen of clap back. Queen, Queen of soul. Queen, Queen of clap backs. Listen, right? She, she had them for you. Yes. She had them for you. Sure. This is certainly one of our supersized episodes. So to push us in the direction of closing things up, Lene, we usually ask our guests to sum up the album that they chose in three words. So I'm just going to make it tougher for you. Can you sum up Aretha Franklin in three words? That's unfair, yes. and it's wrong, <laughs> so I'm out of here. Um, Detroit. Yes. Futuristic. Mm. I love it. And diasporic. Mm-hmm. Nicely done. I'm going to leave the last word to Morgan, because I know she's got something in the chamber here. I consider myself very fortunate to have lived on Earth during her career and that I was able to see and hear what she has done. She deserves all the titles she has been given, for she is the queen, she is the crown princess, she is Lady Soul, she is the unbelievable Aretha Franklin. Don Cornelius said that as he introduced her before she performed Daydreaming on Soul Train. The most important part of that intro is the word is. It's as important in 1973 when he said it as it is now, in the twilight of her leaving us. She is. She wasn't the queen of soul. She is, because no one will inherit the title. Mm. Also, Aretha won't be someday considered the queen of soul, because she is. She is. Any one of the albums that we've chosen today can stand alone in its own significance and on its own merit. Any one of them bump cover to cover. All three are right on time and timeless. Yo, it's West Coast up in here, but we got to give love to the D. Detroit, that is. As we are all thankful for the Belleville Three and Jay Dilla, we are all thankful for Motown and the Clark Sisters. We are all thankful for a band called Death. But we are thankful for the Queen of Soul and what Detroit gave to us. As Oliver and I have said many times, a heat rock is, you know, hot lava, flammables, combustibles, fire. 42 studio albums, 6 live albums, 45 compilation albums, and 131 singles later, we can affirm that Aretha's whole discography is fire. Fire shut up in our bones. Two scholars and a music supervisor walk into a room, just to co-sign what the world already knows, that Aretha Franklin is. She is the queen of soul. She is, period. She deserves all of the titles she has been given, for she is the queen. She is the crown princess. She is Lady Soul. She is the unbelievable Aretha Franklin. That will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, DJ Lene Denise. Thank you so much for joining us. What are you working on right now? Um, I'm teaching, I'm writing, and about Aretha right now. All right. And, and an 
Alice Walker, actually. Fantastic. And where can people find you? Find me at www.djlenedenise.com, DJ Lene Denise, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and Christian Duenas. Our booking manager is Shana Deloria, and today's episode was engineered and edited by Christian. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and exec producer is Jesse Thorne. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. Before we bounce out of here, here is a teaser from our next Women Behaving Boldly episode, an encore presentation of our very first show from a year back, featuring Joy talking about the undersung funk sensation, Betty Davis. Um, I think that this album does a, a really excellent job of showing sort of the totality of Betty as a as a woman and an artist, as a you know completely liberated woman sonically. Um, the the subject matter that she chooses, the, and and it's just so damn funky. <laughs> like it's just so 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 funky, man. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.